The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy in Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Fletcher Azul podcast studio in Houston, Texas. I am joined, as usual, with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. How are you, sir? I am great. Good to be here, as always, Josh. Absolutely. Welcome. I'm getting ahead of myself there. Dan Pickering of Pickering, Pickering Energy Partners. How's life at Pickering Energy Partners, or PEP, as... It's much easier to say. Pep is very busy, Josh. Um, you know, the world's opening back up in terms of both travel and interest in energy. Mm-hmm. And so we're hearing from clients we haven't heard from in a while. Uh, you know, investors in public equities, investors in private equities, guys that want to talk about oil and gas in addition to all the new stuff around energy transition. So it's it's it a very a, busy time. It's a very busy time. You know, we've, we were talking just off camera here at our, our steel business the forgings, the world of anything related to oil and gas, traditional, non-traditional. Our, you know, our partners have a lot of uh, wind, solar, busy, busy. Everything is just, it's sure. it, you know, trying to. You're not even really talking about 2022 anymore. You're a lot of these projects, especially on the steel side, are 2023. So, you've got the president on TV spending 45 minutes at a news conference talking about energy availability and security and strategic petroleum reserve, as well as why we need to accelerate energy transition. Right. So um, so it's, it's president hasn't talked about energy in a long time. So. I'm a little disappointed. I wore this awesome master shirt that you, you didn't bring up at all today in our entire, I've, I've walked around, I, I dropped something in front of you. I was trying to get some attention to it. I went to the master's, Dan. Nice. It was awesome. So what days? Saturday, Sunday. Oh, nice! It was it was very awesome. I'm growing more impressed by the moment. Yeah. Well, the I made fun of everybody. My brother went. He was going to wear pants. I said, "You can't wear pants. So you got to wear shorts. It's it's like you know you got to look as obnoxious as possible in pastels." And so I wore shorts on that Saturday. And if you paid attention to it, it, it was, was cold, freezing it was cold. cold. So I was very cold on Saturday, but I pretended like I wasn't. So I just acted. Got like it no out. big deal, yeah. And on Sunday, I looked like a real genius. Yeah, it was perfect on Sunday. Nice. But yeah, we had a great time. Flew over there back and uh, watched. You know, Scheffler. We were there for the Tiger crowd. I don't know if you've ever mm. followed a Tiger in any one of these tournaments. It's just you can hardly. It's amazing, even when he's injured and hasn't played in a while. I mean, it was amazing. It was you couldn't even be. It was just so many people you could hardly move. So yeah, that was my my big event of the last. Other than energy turning back on and. You know, $110 oil in the world collapsing and other levels. The that Masters was really great. So well, that that is fun. Well, we've got 
one of the Tiger Woods of energy transition investing with us today on our podcast. How was that? Perfect transition. Jim's probably (laughs) never been compared to Tiger Woods in his entire life until today, but I'm happy to be one of the first. Um, Jim Hughes is the managing partner of NCAP's Energy Transition Fund and uh, has a long and deep background in uh, in this business. And so, Jim, thank you for being here. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. And as we always try to do, you know, the 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 purpose of the podcast is to educate folks, um, hopefully entertain them, but um, cover a lot of ground, uh, which we'll do over the next hour. So thanks thanks for being here. Uh, what what I always like to start with is just tell us a little bit about you. You know, not just not just your resume, but where'd you grow up? What's, you know, what makes you tick? And and then you can tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure. So actually where I'm from sort of leads to the, to the tagline I often use when I'm speaking, which is I was born in Pecos, Texas, which is in Reeves County in the middle, middle of the Delaware Basin. And uh, I grew up as a young child during the sort of the birth of the natural gas industry. And mm. I remember being able to look across the horizon and see natural gas flares as far as the eye could see. So I grew up around the oil and gas industry. Uh, my father ran a small general insurance agency, insured lots of oil and gas operators. Um, so even though my sort of professional focus today is the renewables world, I've been around the broader energy sector for a long, long time. Um, spent time as a project finance lawyer um, here in both Dallas and Houston, uh, spent a long time with the Big E, as a lot of other people here in Energy did mm. at Enron, doing international project development. Um, uh, ran a big privately owned holding company. Ran a public company, First Solar, which is a, a solar panel manufacturing company headquartered in Arizona. And then came back to Houston from Arizona and. Uh, uh, got the opportunity to partner with NCAP along with my other three partners at the Energy Transition Fund. And uh, um, it's a great organization, and it's uh, been really enjoyable to partner with them and sort of tackle the challenge of success, profitably putting capital to work for investors. We are going to we are gonna spend time talking about this profitable piece and energy <laughs> transition because a lot of times people don't don't necessarily put those together. Um, your your fund is about a billion two, if I recall correctly. That's correct. And so, um, you know, talk to us about a transition from the Big E, as you described it, to to the solar business, to now investing across the energy transition. Do you? What's your kind of overarching philosophy around energy transition? So the interesting thing is, um, if you look at the broad spectrum of addressable market in terms of energy transition, the single largest target for investment, according to almost anybody you look at, is the power industry. Mm -hmm. Both because the existing industry to decarbonize that takes a significant amount of capital, and to accommodate growth and demand. So we continue to have economic growth. There's a close correlation between electric consumption and GDP. And you have this trend of electrification of portions of the economy as a method to decarbonize those. Well, that's only effective if we've successfully decarbonized the power sector. It doesn't do any good to get up in the morning and drive a Tesla to work 
if coal-fired power is generating the electricity that charges that uh-huh. Tesla. Do you think people get that, by the way? Uh, yeah, I think broadly people They're do, starting to, do yeah. get that. But if you look at investing in renewable power, um, you know, the investment team at, at ANCAP, there's more in common with investing in thermal power 30 years ago than there is different. And, and when you say thermal power, gas-fired power? Gas-fired power, coal-fired power, mm-hmm. something where you're combusting something to generate the electricity. Mm-hmm. And so our base philosophy is not terribly different from uh, the philosophy you've, you've always had. It comes down to what market are you selling into? What sort of offtake structure do you have? Are you do you have an open position in the market, or is someone signing a contract to buy your power? What are the inputs? Whether that's fuel inputs, whether that's resource, be it wind or sunlight. What does it cost to build your plant? What does it cost to operate your plant? The same set of fundamentals that that form the investment decision. 30 years ago, developing a gas-fired power plant are not terribly different from the fundamentals that inform building either a wind or solar facility somewhere in the U.S. or, frankly, somewhere else in the world. So there's a lot of, when you look at the landscape of renewable energy developers, there's a lot of refugees from the uh, uh, from the coal and fire, coal and gas-fired power uh-huh. sector that that populate that universe. We didn't suddenly create a new type of power developer when renewables came along. It's the same skill set, the same person, just generally applying it against a new technology. Okay, and when when you think about when I think about the energy transition, there are so many verticals. There's so many things. So power is a big one, but there are a bunch of others. Talk, talk a little bit about that. So if you look at the, the, there's IEA, there's McKinsey, there's a bunch of different studies, but the number comes down to that we need to be st- spending something in, on the order of $10 trillion a year every year in order to achieve the, the goals of holding climate change to 1.5 degrees C. 10, that's a big, Ten. okay. And that's three and a half to $4 trillion more than we're spending today. Yeah, okay. So... The notion of that incremental level of capital deployment is very intimidating. Mm-hmm. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether that's realistic or achievable. The only relevance to me is that there's a huge market opportunity mm-hmm. that, that has to be addressed. When you look at the verticals and you order them by what's going to have the greatest impact on total carbon emissions in the climate, um, depending on who's you look at, you know, power is the biggest. E-mobility is next. And so that is electric vehicles, electrification of trains, electrification of cars, um, uh, electrification of long-haul transport, broadly taking that entire transport segment and decarbonizing it through electrification. That's the, uh, another gigantic number fuels is another gigantic number and so that's producing from a variety of technologies a molecule that can serve as a fuel um, in various processes that is low carbon and it may be low carbon inherently from how it's produced i.e. electrolyzed hydrogen or it may be low carbon because there has been some sort of mitigation carbon capture and sequestration or some other level of mitigation or it can be feedstock we're using a biomass 
that because it is grown in a regular cycle, it is viewed as a carbon neutral feedstock to produce the fuel. So there's a whole variety of investments that kind of fall into the fuels category. And then closely related to that is kind of what I call the carbon management category. So that would include your carbon capture and sequestration. Um, that would include natural um, solutions. So planting forest to absorb carbon and offset. Um, agricultural agriculture that has a net impact of, in, of putting greater carbon into our soils. There's a whole variety of those. Um, activities that are carbon management. Direct air capture falls into the carbon management. We can't eliminate all emissions, so let's go install units that capture carbon out of the air and then sequester it through one of a variety of methods. Um, and then as you move from there, there are a number of other verticals, but they get smaller and less significant. Agriculture is one, and that's both how we grow our agriculture and what we eat. That's obviously outside the purview of, uh, um, of the energy transition, but there's a lot of capital that's going to that. Kind of over you, in the sustainability area. Yeah, so, so you know, when you look at um, indoor agriculture, vertical uh -huh. agriculture, vertical farming, those types of things, obviously that's outside um, the purview of, of energy transition. But that's, but that's if you look across where are we gonna spend $10 trillion to manage carbon across our whole economy, those are the biggest, and then you know there are a number of, of others. They're just not really front and center in terms of energy transition. Okay. In terms of opportunity, as an investor, you have to think about this. The other way you kind of need to think about this is if we're looking at the full decarbonization of the global economy, there's the next 10%, and there's the last 10%. So okay. the task gets more difficult. The curve increases in uh, slope as you move forward. So achieving the next 10% of decarbonization of our economy is way easier than the last 10%. Mm -hmm. So there is investment activity that's focused on the next 10%. Which tends to be what we do. Okay. Then there's other well, investment. When you say tends to be what we do, meaning your fund, that's meaning those in are the, capital where investments. Where you invest? Yes. Yep. Mm -hmm. But then there's also very important investment that is focused on the last ten percent. So there's um, uh, a non number of philanthropists set up a fund called Breakthrough Energy Ventures, and they're investing in things like nuclear fission research, long duration energy storage. Um, uh, advanced geothermal um, uh, power techniques. So they're really looking at what are the solutions we're going to need to achieve that last 10%. Because as I tell people, when you talk about net zero by any date, pick your date, 2050, 2060, 2070, whatever, if you don't well, I, I won't say that. I personally believe we don't have the tools available to us yet to get there. Okay. That doesn't mean we should I agree with you, but it, why keep going? It doesn't mean we shouldn't embark upon the journey. Mm -hmm. It just shouldn't stop us. Shouldn't stop us. We should embark upon the journey with a sense of urgency. It just needs to be we can need to be candid about the fact that it is a wickedly difficult task that's ahead of us and that we probably don't have all of the solutions available to us. Now, some people will react very negatively to that and will say that we can achieve with wind and solar and battery energy storage. I personally think we need 
either a significant nuclear component that comes from technologies that don't exist today um, or other advances uh, that that will get us that last percentage, the mm-hmm. last few percentages, which are going to be very difficult. Now, if you look over the course of human history over the last hundred years and compare where we were as a society a hundred years ago to where we are today, there's absolutely no reason to believe that we won't find those technologies and accomplish those things that are necessary. I just think it's important to acknowledge that that needs to be part of the landscape. We have to find the things that are going to solve the the really difficult last few percentages. So if I paraphrased what you said, you're focused on the first 10%. So you're going to you're going to get us down start down the path and the, the breakthrough energy venture types um, we need them because they're doing the, the space stuff. They're doing the, the Eureka type of activities Absolutely. that we're going to have to have. And they're not the only ones. There's lots of other people sure. also engaged in that space. But yeah. it, if, you want, if people want to understand investing in the energy transition, I think you have to look at both those vertical segments that we talked about. But then you also have to look at, is this something I can build today? Yep. Or am I trying to invent something that we're going to build in 20 years? Mm-hmm. And so in the world of, in, in your world, the next 10%, uh, we think about that just so we understand when you think about economics, you're, we, tend, we should think about you guys as, as kind of private equity players, that you're, you're playing not for, not for infrastructure fund 5% returns and not for VC 10x returns. You're somewhere in the middle. That's correct. Okay. Okay. And, and so I looked on your website, which is helpful in terms of you guys have – I think six portfolio companies. That's correct. And so it looks like power is a big piece of that. Absolutely. I assume that's not happenstance given you talked about power as being kind of one of the most impactful areas. So talk to us a little bit about power and kind of the things that are happening there in in the world of energy transition. So power was the first major industrial sector to begin to aggressively decarbonize. Um, And it was really triggered first in Europe um, with a lot of feed-in tariff programs, aggressive subsidies to begin the decarbonization there, there. And then shortly followed by the clean energy mandates that California put in place. And those two events really sort of kick-started the a lot of the focus on power um the economics came within reason faster in power than other places uh explain what that means so the cost of wind and solar started these dramatic trajectories down Mm -hmm. um and you could just see year after year after year dramatic reductions in the cost and PPA prices were falling. And so as those costs reduced, enthusiasm grew. Mm-hmm. And and that just sort of you the the notion of renewable portfolio standards or renewable portfolio mandates caught on at the state level here in the US. And but, so and this, this was the Whole California saying we have to have twenty percent of our power. Correct, from and Texas saying sources. we have to have six and a half percent. And so today, okay. thirty-seven states in the U.S. have mm-hmm. some form of renewable portfolio mandate. 
Um, if you go back to the early days, the power in California was very expensive. Yep. If you you know look over the last several years, that power has come down dramatically in price. Um, so you know, power was an early addressable market mm-hmm. because costs had come down, you, and the demand was somewhat inelastic because you had these state level renewable mandates which generated predictable, visible demand. Okay, California says we have to be at 40% by this date. Uh We know what projected demand in California is. We know, therefore, 40% of that number is what the installed base needs to be. How many megawatts? How many megawatts? So, and you could go state by state and aggregate all of these programs, and you could sort of say, okay, I have a pretty good visible demand there. At the same time, corporate procurement as a matter of policy as opposed to mandate also began to kick in. And you saw first the big tech companies enter the market and they were active in the market saying we want to buy clean power, we want to we want to power our operations with renewable energy um, and we're willing to enter into long-term contracts that facilitate the construction of these assets. Over time, particularly the last several years, we've seen that expand from the tech giants, you know, from the Apple, Amazon, Google, um, uh, part of the world to broader corporate America wants to sign green PPAs. They want to um, they want to decarbonize the power that that their businesses use. Mm-hmm. You've, this is accompanied by, as I know you guys are doing a lot of work on. Everybody wants to know what your carbon footprint looks like. Mm-hmm. Whether you have any government regulation that that governs you. Investors want to know what your carbon mm-hmm. footprint looks like, and so everybody is starting to pay attention to it. As I used to say uh, when I ran for solar, I would say, we don't have to win the race. We just got a tie <laughs> because our environmental footprint is going to break the tie. And I, and I think that's still true today. If a company has a choice between carbon-emitting power, carbon-free power at the same price, they're going to choose the carbon-free power. So you have, you win the tie sort of in, in the race. So all of those dynamics has have meant that power was one of the earliest and largest opportunities from an energy transition standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so you've, you've got, again, doing the math, a billion to uh, in your fund, six companies, couple hundred million dollars give or take uh allocated to each i assume and so is that what it takes to build a energy transition company today i mean you hear all these stories about people in their garage with you know 600 bucks off their credit card or something so this is something 10 trillion i guess you got to spend big yeah this uh, this has been you know something i've often told people over the course of my career a lot of people simply don't understand the scale of the energy industry, and I mean broadly as applicable to the economy. Mm-hmm. And you can do small things, and they may be individually rewarding, and they may be neat, and they may be interesting. But if you're really going to move the needle, you have to do things at tremendous scale. And spend and, a trillion dollars. Yeah, and so I've, you know, I've, uh, this is true before the energy transition when we were just doing traditional private power. I'm like, you know, we spend money a billion at a time, not a few million at a mm-hmm. time, and that's still true today. You know, it's it is an industry that happens at scale. 
Um, uh, if you want to be meaningful, if you want to move the needle um, on a consistent and regular basis, you need to invest at scale. So yes, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars of commitment um, uh, to build meaningful enterprises that are that are going to you know set the stage to change what's happening. Mm-hmm. And are you are you as a as an investor, are you backing teams? Are you buying businesses and giving them capital to grow? What's your what's your strategy? So our strategy, and again, this has sort of been true in power for a long time, we're really focused on the front end of the value creation cycle. So that means creating businesses and creating assets. Okay. Um, so we tend to form or back management teams at the very inception of a business. Um, uh, we want to start with as close to a blank sheet of paper as possible. Um, the whole process of creating assets and then aggregating those assets into a business is where a lot of the value creation in the, in the cycle occurs. So from our standpoint, the earlier you start in the process, the greater the return potential. Mm-hmm. We're taking proven technologies, we're taking existing business models, and we're just applying the best and brightest people, capital, and savvy decision making to do that, you know, better, faster, quicker than anybody else. So it's not, we're not taking some unknown technology, we're using a normal technology, we're not creating some completely unheard of business model, we're not disrupting some existing business, disintermediating existing intermediaries. No, we're just, this is blocking and tackling and execution. This is take a team of talented, experienced, savvy people, give them money, go do what you do, and create and and uh, you know create a meaningful business in the process. So that says wind and solar, because you mentioned them, are far enough down the development curve that they're no longer expensive, not making any money. We need to do this because sooner or later it'll work. VC kinds of things. It's it, they're real businesses now. Real businesses. Okay, and one of the things I've always been, w- what we hear when we hear about wind and solar projects is we hear infrastructure investors stepping up and and willing to fund things at a six or seven or eight percent rate of return and but you've got a wind company and a solar company in your in your portfolio those aren't the kind of returns you're after so what are you doing that's different than those guys so <coughs> let's Let's clarify that when people talk about those returns, yep. um, they're talking about mature, revenue-producing, constructed, stable assets, usually with some sort of investment-grade offtake contract. Okay? Offtake customer. Some customer, yes. Okay. So it's it's the land has been procured, the permits have been obtained, the equipment has been purchased. The plant has been constructed. It has been entered into, it's been interconnected to the grid. It's entered into commercial operation and someone has signed a con- of investment grade or high credit uh, quality has signed a contract to take that power for a long period of time. Yes, if you want to own at that point in the life cycle of the asset, you're not going to earn high returns. It's going to be low, low returns. Better than a CD in the bank, but... Correct. But not a ton. The other thing that I will point out is 
mature renewable power assets are some of the lowest risk assets out there. Just let's just compare traditional thermal assets and a natural gas plant. Okay. Okay. A natural gas plant is a conversion device. Okay. It's converting one molecule into power. Mm-hmm. That molecule is a commodity that has variable volatile pricing. Okay. And it's producing another commodity that has variable volatile pricing. And you got to deploy a whole bunch of capital over a long period of time to create this asset that's going to sit in between two volatile commodities. Okay. Right? That can be very ugly. All right. We have seen it historically. Um, uh, a power, pl- uh, solar power plant. Hold on, before, uh, I'm, let's rabbit trail a little bit. So you said we have seen that be very ugly. So are you talking about people build power plants in a certain spot, the price of gas goes up and they lose their shirt because now- And the price of power goes down and they lose their shirt because their conver- the value of their conversion is zero or negative. Yep. Yep. It's not an everyday occurrence, but it has happened. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that gets priced into the capital return you want on that asset. A let's take a solar power plant. Okay. Okay. It's all capital cost on the front end. There is no fuel because the sun is free. The sun is free. So Unless, Josh, do you pay for the sun? I don't. There we go. <laughs> Sunscreen. So it's a zero marginal cost asset and I know y'all don't want to get technical, but that's all that means. That means that you build it all your cap all your cost is capital up front. There's de minimis operating cost, and if the sun shines, it's going to produce electricity. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter what gas prices are, doesn't matter anything. It's going to produce electricity that's going to have some value. So, and, and Jim, so the reason the reason solar was quote unquote really expensive ten years ago was because building that plant was really expensive. Cost a lot. Cost a lot. And it costs a lot less now. Cost a lot less now. Okay. And a lot of that's technology, and a lot of it is scale, and a lot of it is materials, mm-hmm. but it costs a lot less. But my point is, is there's a reason that the returns on a mature renewable facility are as low as they are, because the investment community has learned they are relatively low-risk assets. They don't take a long time to build. They don't have a lot of technical complexity. They don't tend to wear out. You put them out there, you leave them alone, and they generate electricity for long periods of time at zero marginal cost. Um, so they are they are the assets that dispatch because they have no the cost of wind or the cost of solar. They're the going to produce free. electricity. Okay. Irrespe- there's no input cost to con- to generate a, a dispatch decision. Mm-hmm. The power that comes out of them is free. Yep. In terms of marginal cost of production. Um, but we invest at a different point of the cycle, so we're going to create that asset, all right? And if you're going to create it from scratch, if you're going to go send a land guy out there to go identify a piece of property that is suitable for the construction of either a wind or solar facility, negotiate with the landowners to obtain the rights to construct that facility, negotiate with the mineral owners to grant you the right to use the surface in a manner that might impair the future use of the subsurface for minerals. Let's say you then get site control. Now you got to go get in an interconnect queue 
with a system operator. Well, interconnect. Oh, hold on a second. So interconnect queue, meaning you got to get to the grid. You got to get in line. Okay. So to, you can't just run a wire. Nope. The, the, okay. the grid is a highly planned, managed place. Okay. Okay. The job of a system operator or a utility is to manage supply and demand in the short term, medium term, and long term. Okay. okay. So when you go to them and say, I have a 150 megawatt solar site. Which would be a big one, an average one? Average. Okay. And I want to connect here to your system. The system operator depends on what market you're in, where you are, but some entity in Texas, it's the TDSP, you're going to go to them, depending on the size, it may be ERCOT itself, and you're going to say, I would like to interconnect here, and they're going to say, okay, tell me everything about your plant, tell me its size, tell me the characteristics of the power it's going to produce, tell me when it's going to produce it. I have to go do a study to make sure that the grid can handle that power. Can physically handle it. Can physically handle it. And, oh, by the way, you need to make a deposit that if you decide not to build the plant, you're going to pay me back for the cost of that study. Okay. So no then free lunch. No free lunch. And then if they do the study and they tell you, here's how much we're going to have to spend on the grid. Because it can't handle it. Because it can't handle it. Then we need another deposit. Because if we make all these improvements to the grid and you don't build the plant, we've wasted a bunch of money. We can't ask ratepayers to pay for that. So you got to put up another deposit. So the only point is, is that the process of creating this asset is an involved process that carries with it the need to spend capital, the need for labor and effort, and carries risk of, of failure. So the return you're going to earn from doing that from scratch versus buying it from uh, when it's all when all of that's already been done is going to be different and so that de-risking process of taking an asset from an idea to a physical asset delivering power you get significant discount rate compression over that value creation horizon and it has been true in power for a long time the capital that does that isn't always the same capital that owns it for the long term. Mm -hmm. There's tended to be this process of there is capital that engages in asset creation, and then there is capital that owns and operates for the long term. And that delta in cost of capital is where our returns come from. Gotcha. Okay. So you're you're taking more risk. You have to have more return. And um, in today's world is it is it hard to find spots to build a new solar facility or a wind farm or? depends upon the market so um texas or california yes it's, it's hard. hard to find it's hard to find because people are already there people are already there it's been okay. going on for a long time those are the two largest renewable markets in the united states are california and texas um and it's it's going to be a dynamic that we see in the renewable power business going forward, every incremental megawatt is going to be harder to develop and less valuable. Because we found the sunniest spots or the windiest spots already? Correct. And as you begin, we will reach a point where there's only so much electricity we need in the middle of the afternoon. 
And so adding more electricity in the middle of the afternoon is not as valuable as the very first plant we built that added electricity in the middle of the afternoon. Mm -hmm. So you have this dynamic within renewable power that the greater the penetration, the less valuable each incremental megawatt is. In California, this is famously called the duck curve Mm -hmm. because the, this may be techie, but the, the thermal dispatch net of renewables, if you draw that line, it looks like a duck in California. That's why it's called the duck curve. Um, power prices are negative can during be, parts yes. of the day because there's so much. And in Texas, they can be negative at night because there's so much wind. The wind blows at night. The sun shines in the afternoon. If you put, two, so if you put a whole bunch of wind in, you're going to get negative power prices at night. If you put a whole bunch of solar in, eventually you will drive it. In the absence of storage, whole topic I'm sure We're you want. We're coming to that. We're coming to that. <laughs> in the absence of storage, you would eventually get to the point that you're driving all of the thermal, all of the gas and coal plants out of the system. And at once you've done that, incremental renewables don't add any value. Okay. So if we look at what happened in Europe this past summer, though, didn't, or haven't we been driving the coal and gas-fired power off the grid, and then the folks in Europe wound up with not enough power, and so they had a bunch of chaos? Correct. Europe is a, is a more complicated and difficult question to answer. Um, the, the manner in which they added renewables is, from a policy standpoint, I don't think it was a f- particularly effective. Okay. Um, so for our European listeners. Which there are many. Yes, their government, their government didn't quite do it the right way. Correct. So it wasn't a free market solution, it was a government solution there? It, it, it was or a both. government solution, and it was a government solution that was particularly distortive. Okay. And and I I'll give you it's a it's a simple example. One of the primary mechanisms in Europe was what called a feed-in tariff, which is just a simple mechanism where you say if you build a solar plant, I'm going to pay you X cents per kilowatt hour for the power. Okay. I call it the limbo contest because when you do that, everybody that can't get under the bar gets to play. So you wind up potentially with too much oversupply. And what happened in Europe is. They became alarmed at how many people were getting under the bar, so they lower the bar. That just makes people work harder and move faster. It tends to accelerate the effect rather than dampen the effect. So if I layer all this together, <laughs> they were too successful. They yes. got too much. Yes. And when you have too much, you lower prices when you can produce, which pushes out the guys who can produce all the time. And, and what happened is those, those incentives, those markets collapsed. Yeah. That's not, if you're trying to build a long-term sustainable decarbonization, having incentive programs that are gigantic and then collapse isn't exactly the best way to do it. Do they have a cohesive mindset over there or is it every government for themselves? No, they, I, I mean, look, increasingly they have a cohesive mindset and the FIT programs are, largely in the past, but that was the dynamic that drove kind of the, the early experiences they had and has left them to a certain extent with the grid that they have. But there are dramatically different viewpoints within Europe. Look at the French. The French are the leading nuclear generator mm-hmm. in the world. The Germans have shut them all down. You know, I mean, it's, it's 
you know, it's very differing viewpoints across the continent. The difference in the U.S. and, um, you know, in Texas, sometimes we tend to shower nothing but criticism on California. But the, the beauty of the California Renewable Power Mandate is it showed all of us a rational way to do it, which is let's not change the procurement processes that have been in place for a long time. Okay, let's let the utilities do their planning, which is their core skill set is let's plan the grid, let's plan how much power we need, let's plan the infrastructure that we need, and then let's use competitive processes to solicit the lowest cost power within that that we can. So yes, in the early parts of the California Renewable Power um, uh, Mandate, you had some very expensive PPAs. But power that purchase agreements. Power purchase agreements. But that competitive process rapidly drove those prices down. And so it wasn't the lowest gets under the bar. It was, we've decided how much we're gonna buy and the lowest cost producer gets access to those contracts hmm. like, oh, like a dutch auction you, yes you wind up buying the cheapest up until you get until the amount you, you want exact that's exactly right okay um at the risk of going off the rails here but we we've, we've got we've got a smart power guy sitting next to us where were you february of <laughs> 2021 feb 20, what year are we in right now 22. 22. Okay. I'm talking about winter storm Yuri here in oh, Texas. Oh, excuse me. I, with, with COVID, it feels like years yes. disappeared. So, okay. Yes. I've placed it. I was in the woodlands, stayed okay. home. Yep. All right. We did not lose power. Okay. So, Jim, give our listeners, I mean, what the hell happened? How, how, did, how did our power grid almost fail and then brownouts? And, I mean, if we've got the most renewable energy, we've got the most of this and that, how do we how do we have a winter storm, Yuri? And by the way, before I, I, I want to be clear how lucky we were not to lose power. I know a lot of people did lose power for many days, very Right cold. now you're viewed as a power elite, yes. Josh, yes. by not losing power. I think I'm next to a uh, fire station, and that helped me out, actually. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so one thing I, I, I always preface my comments on Yuri with is, it was unprecedented cold, okay? We've had cold, but in terms of the extent across the entire state and the speed with which the cold air moved into the state were unprecedented. So, you know, let's take into consideration it was extreme weather. People are like, oh, well, we've had this or we've had that. Yes, but, you know, it was a a extreme So this is a Six Sigma kind of cold. Yeah, but the core issue in URI was a series of interconnected vulnerabilities between our natural gas system and our power system that nobody had ever really recognized or taken consideration of. Okay. No one had ever thought if we get really cold air intrusion that covers the entire state, west and east, we're going to lose a bunch of power generation. We knew that. That's happened before. Okay. But we're also going to lose a bunch of gas facilities. We're going to lose storage facilities. We're going to lose production facilities. And we're going to have a combination of a loss of generating capacity and the need to 
do everything we can to get generation up and at the same time have critical failures across our natural gas system. And those and, and look, there's plenty of, of things to go around. We lost a nuke unit. Okay. We lost coal units. We lost natural gas units. The wind was producing less than predicted, but candidly, it wasn't predicted to produce very much. Mm-hmm. It was the middle of the night. Solar isn't relevant to the, yep. to the analysis. Um, it was this interconnection between gas um, and power that produced the extreme event that we had. Some of it, it was as simple as gas production facilities, gas processing facilities, gas storage facilities had not filled out the appropriate forms to alert the utility to the fact that, hey, if you're going to turn the power Maybe off, critical don't turn us off. Yeah, we're just, there's not going to be any gas coming. <coughs> exactly. Yeah. So a big part of URI won't happen again hmm. because... You anticipated my question. Is it going to, are we still that vulnerable? Well, we're still, we're always vulnerable, okay? The other thing I tell people is there's a concept in power called the value of lost load, okay? Okay. That's what does it cost the economy if you lose power, right? We could build a power system that would never fail, guaranteed. Now, our power prices would all be 10 times the power prices we have today. This is the build the church for Easter Sunday discussion. Exactly. You know, it's like I have this conversation with respect to the other analogy I'll use is automobiles. We could mandate that you build a car that no one can be killed in. All you have to do is watch a NASCAR wreck on a super speedway and that will tell you that we can build cars in which the occupants can survive almost anything. The problem is your average Chevy sedan would be $150,000. So we choose to make risk-reward assessments Mm. as part of public policy and across our society. Power is no different. We could build a grid that is absolutely invulnerable to power outage. The problem is no one could afford the power that it produced. Yeah, the the six people that could turn their lights on would be golden. (laughs) Let's... So I will say just real quick, yeah. I we are the best podcast in energy and transition. So, but there is another podcast out there. If you googled energy and transition podcast, it's a UT professor that did a pretty nice little summarization on what happened during the 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 freeze Yuri. of twenty twenty one. If you wanted more information on that, I would say Google that and listen to it. She does a pretty objective job of saying She does. Hey, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yes. she does a good job of explaining. I don't remember her name, but it's not too hard to find. No, it's not. And, uh, uh, it, I mean, she was a, she was a I, I don't want to say victim. That's not the right. But she experienced the cold as well. So, yeah, if you want more on that, hmm. go, go test that out as well. That's so. good. Um, but we're still the best, just there FYI. There we go. One, one of the ways that you stabilize a volatile grid at least what people have been telling us is is batteries. So talk to us about batteries. Are, are they practical? Can you make them any size? How fast should we be implementing batteries to offset s- renewables, you know, intermittent sources? Should every solar project have a battery associated with it? I mean, how, how do you think about batteries? So... I'll start with we put our money where our mouth is. So the largest target of investment in our first fund is battery energy storage. Okay. So we have two portfolio companies, Broadreach Power and Jupiter Power. Um, if you were to make a list of the top 10 
battery energy, independent battery energy developers in North America, they would both be on that list. They'd probably both be on a top five, but for sure top 10. Okay. Um, I started taking note of batteries back in 2015. I was still the CEO of First Solar and we hired a, a guy in our R&D department and sort of said, go do a bunch of research and write me a white paper. Should I care about batteries? Mm -hmm. You know, is what should I think about yeah. batteries? And so he went, did a bunch of work, produced a document for the board of directors. And the conclusion was at that point in time, this was 2015, installed batteries were $1,500 a kilowatt hour. In absolute terms, that doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's just a number. But that said, other than extreme circumstances like a remote island where you need 24-hour power, mm -hmm. they don't yet make economic sense. Okay. The caveat... So $1,500 a kilowatt hour. What, what's a, a new gas-fired power plant? I'm doing the wrong thing? It's, it's not okay. really the don't right do that. thing. Okay. Um, it's expensive. Let's put it it's, It was expensive. Very, very expensive. That's the only thing to understand is that it's expensive. But there was a caveat in the, in the analysis that said it's likely there is a learning curve with respect to batteries that is very similar to wind and solar. Okay. And semiconductors and any number of other technologies. So, you know which I think was a, a great way for this guy to get a job monitoring the marketplace right. on a going right. forward he, basis. He, he said, you need me for the yes. rest of my career. Right. Yeah. But so we sort of set it to the side. We didn't do anything. I retired from First Solar in 2016. 2017, I and one of my current partners at NCAP, Tim Rabhorn, we sort of said, maybe it's time to check in on that analysis. Okay. And so... We started digging, and Tim did a bunch of work and sort of came back and said, well, it's now $750 a kilowatt hour. So it had fallen by half in two years. And he said, I think it's going to do that every two years a few more times. Okay. And we could do back-of-the-envelope math and sort of say, you know, when it starts getting down to – three to four hundred dollars a kilowatt hour it starts to get interesting as a meaningful contributor to the grid so that was how we sort of got interested it was purely driven by economics and this is unsubsidized there was no subsidy mm -hmm. still is no no significant subsidy for batteries um when you then when we started looking at the use cases what would you do with the battery what problems would you solve on the mm -hmm. grid that's when our antenna started to stick up because it was okay I can solve problems close to load so I can put a battery alongside a rooftop solar array on a house or a business and I can allow them to make more efficient use of the solar power that they're generating interesting use case I can put batteries alongside a solar array in the desert and store the middle of the afternoon energy and re-deliver it at more valuable times, that's an interesting use case. Because you're saying, we know it's being generated. You told us in some instances power prices would be very low at that period so of time. Store so store it and re-deliver it at a different point in time. But then we also began to see, wow, 
if you have constraints in your transmission grid, it might be a really effective way to solve those. And let me give you an example. Let's say you're a grid operator. You have a substation in the middle of Houston that in the middle of August for two hours when it's the hottest part of the day, that substation peaks out. In other words, it's full. No more power can go through it. No more power can go through it. Well, historically, you'd have to say, I'm going to have to do an expansion of that substation. Because you don't, because you need more power. You need more power on the other side of it, and the only way to do that is to expand the substation. Well, if it's just two hours a day, two days a year, do you really want to expand the substation if I can put a battery there sized exactly to how much power I'm constrained for exactly the duration that I'm constrained and that's a whole lot cheaper than expanding the entire substation. So we began to see that batteries on a grid are an efficiency machine. Okay, The grid, and these are studies and these are you know horseshoes or hand grenades numbers, but a modern power grid is anywhere from 40 to 45 percent aggregate capacity factor. So that means we're only using about 40 to 45 percent of the capacity of that distribution system. Of, of the wires. Of the wires. So that means there's a whole lot more capacity out there. Well, batteries allow you to use more of that capacity. So you start to have to think about, okay, I can't look at the cost of the battery in isolation. I have to look at the cost of the battery as part of, does it make a more efficient grid? Uh And so you start looking at, wow, we can use these batteries in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, We can use them in a whole bunch of different places, and they're getting a lot less expensive. Hmm, sounds like it might be an interesting asset class to learn more about. So that's why we started turning our attention to um, learning as much as we could about batteries and why we began in ba- investing into the space. So batteries are an important part of allowing the grid to achieve renewable penetrations at higher percentages. Um, we've seen in the U.S., it's been done in California, it's been done in Texas. You know, we can go 30, 40, even 50% penetration of the grid on renewables with our existing infrastructure and we can be generally okay. If you aspire to much higher levels of renewable penetration, which is what net zero does, which is what net zero does, you're going to have to have a major investment in batteries. Now, I get back to my next 10%, last 10%. Mm-hmm. Batteries are part of the solution for the next 10, 20%. Mm-hmm. People think that, oh, they're the solution for the last 10%. They're not the solution for the last 10%. There are problems that will exist uh, with mass renewable application on the grid that batteries aren't a good solution for. But, and one is seasonality, okay? Renewable generation varies significantly based Uh on the season, Uh okay? A battery solves a few hours during the day. It doesn't solve three months of the year. So, so... Uh, a battery like we're talking about for the power system is not like the ever-ready, you know, double-A battery that we go buy at the store that just sits there and is ready for the next three years before I'm going to go use it my flashlight or whatever. It's it different. has to be charged and discharged on a daily basis or on a whenever you want to use it. You got you to take power off the grid and charge it. 
and then after you discharge it you got to take more power so it's a it's it's a net zero set aside efficiency for the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a net zero asset. It neither consumes nor produces power. It stores it and re-delivers it at okay. a different time. So, um, but batteries will be a gigantic part of the grid going forward. They solve all sorts of problems. They facilitate greater renewable penetration. They don't solve all the problems. Mm -hmm. We will have other But that's a major problem solved yes yeah. it is i remember um, you know i lived in california during the well i'm sure they still have them the brownouts the rolling brownouts and you know my old roommate when i was in my 20s was a power trader and he they would trade you know they would turn on the generators and they would all the stuff out on the west coast and he basically said you just can't store power this was 15 years ago and that problem seems to be changed now with what you're describing as a major solution to Correct. Um, and deliver that, yeah. And so, you know, we recognized that as an, it was an emerging asset class. We were made big early bets, and, you know, that appears to be going, going well. But, yeah, it's, it will revolutionize. It's also what's been fun as an investor. Um, they're wickedly complex assets from a commercial standpoint, and that makes, makes it fun. You know, a solar plant is an asset that sits in the desert and it generates power when the sun shines and that's the only variability there is you can sell that power under a long-term contract or you can sell it when and as it's produced and that's all you can do okay a battery can be load i.e. it can be it can consume power off the grid it can be generation i.e. deliver power to the grid it can be both if it's half charged, it can both absorb power or deliver power, all right? And you can change your mind and reposition it as an asset multiple times a day. So so you can charge it one hour and dispatch discharge it the, it the next, next. You can sell multiple products into the market. So you can sell, I'm going to be load, so pay me to be load. You can pay me to be generation. You can pay me to be reserve power. I can sell ancillary services, or I can just arbitrage. I'm going to charge in the middle of the night when prices are low, and I'm going to resell. So they're commercially very complicated assets, which is part of what makes them fun. You know, as an investor, you need really smart people to to manage them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they're they're they will be a significant part of the power landscape on a going forward basis what when you say just real quick when you say smart people to run that is that a power trader that runs that in the it, traditional it, sense in the yes or an asset ma power asset manager risk manager trader depends okay. on trader tends to connotate that that you're taking um just open positions in the market and making bets one way or the mm -hmm. other I, we think of it more as an asset manager, risk manager. You're taking a physical asset and you're optimizing the revenues you can earn out of that asset. But the skill sets are largely the same. Okay. Yes, it's a trader Okay. at the and end of the day. Jim, um, so you're describing something with big potential. The costs have come down. Um, what's the – what are the bottlenecks? Why are there not a gazillion of these under construction <clears throat> right now? The biggest bottleneck now, so th and this is unique for the, the power industry. Almost every piece of equipment I can think of that we've dealt with in the power industry, we drove the market. We were the market. There's no other use for it. Transformers, 
gas turbines, heat recovery steam generators, you know, all of the bits and pieces that make up a power plant are the primary demand is the power industry. Yeah. And, and I, I have to interject, I missed the opportunity for just a great joke as he was saying, heat heat generators and transformers and i'm like whoa he's talking you know for a power guy he's talking dirty right now anyhow <laughs> well, sorry I, before you I, can I move it on here so you you can imagine how detailed dan is in his preparation right? oh yes okay <laughs> so he has extensive notes which it's amazing how smart this guy is and you and but as we did our prep work for you coming in he was telling me how interesting you're going to be and and what i'm noticing is i'm trying to follow Dan's outline, and I'm like, where is he in, in his questioning? <laughs> I found you, I think. I think I found where I, you want to be here. But, and I think we've touched some of this stuff, but you're right. He's, he is, this conversation is going a lot of different places. Um, it's very interesting. You're living up to exactly how he sold, sold you to be before the show going on. Uh, this is, there's a lot of excitement in this world that you people don't really think about. I don't know. It, you know, you mentioned that you moved from uh, Arizona back over to Houston, and you say that the people in the, the world of, they know how their car gets charged today. I wonder, is that true in Houston as it is in Arizona? Because this excitement that you're talking feels very, you don't feel like you're from Pecos, Texas right now. You, you feel very much Arizona-based and West Coast. Is a lot of this coming back to Houston? Oh, yeah, look. <clears throat> I did a, uh, a panel the other day with your former colleague, Bobby Tudor, and we were talking about the energy transition in Houston. And the point I made is I said, look, Houston has been at the center of the power industry for a long time. It's more well known for oil and gas, but um, there's been as much um, significant activity in the power industry in Houston as, as anywhere else in the country. Obviously, there are big utilities everywhere, but in terms of independent private power in terms of um, power trading. You know, there's only a few places in the country where you have really significant nexus of, of power trading activities, and Houston's probably the largest. Um, so, you know, yeah, Houston is, a lot of the vibe around this is centered in Houston. You know, the best example I can give, you probably spent time at Sarah this time around, you know, I remember when there was no power day at Sarah. You know, which is which is a big industry conference here yes in houston, here in houston. Yeah. Now, typically oil and gas right. yeah but now not only is there a power day they have a whole separate conference that's nothing but energy transition there was a renewable uh, section at nape this year yeah so now, th i didn't know that now that that is earth changing yes <laughs> so so I take the blame for getting us off. You were telling us the the back on outline the batteries yes. and the the limitations to adding tons of batteries. And you were saying we <coughs> we're so we're not the we we're we're not driving um, demand for batteries. The EV market is driving demand for batteries. The largest consumer of lithium ion manufacturing capacity globally is the EV market. So utility a utility or power storage battery is the same thing that you would shrink, you know, have a smaller version that goes in an EV. Yes. Hmm. Okay. They're packaged differently. Yep. But there's a core cell, mm -hmm. okay, that is the core building block of those systems, and they come off of the same manufacturing lines mm -hmm. from the same companies out of the same raw materials. So, yes, you're competing for manufacturing capacity 
and raw material capacity with the EV market. So that is, has left us in a circumstance where there is more demand for batteries than there is capacity currently. Okay. When you aggregate energy storage demand and EV demand, as well as you still have consumer electronics and a bunch of other demand software. out there. Yep. <clears throat> so yes, we're fundamentally in a position where um, capacity is constrained. Now, you know, markets fix themselves and usually pretty quickly so massive capacity additions are underway at all in all of the big battery manufacturing locations there are all the vast majority of utility scale batteries today are lithium ion uh, but there are other technologies and this shortage of lithium ion batteries is creating a market opportunity and we're going to see those develop there are redox flow batteries, there are aqueous zinc batteries, there are a bunch of other technologies that are probably going to get a chance to succeed mm -hmm. simply because there are capacity constraints in the lithium ion world. So the VC world is working on Absolutely. all the new batteries. Yep. So um, just to put it in context, uh, uh, utility scale battery project would cost how much? $30 million? Well, it depends on what size it is. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm using 40, 450 a megawatt or a kilowatt hour. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think about that. But but your two, two businesses that are involved in, in utility scale storage, is it bite-sized? Can they spend $5 million bucks for a project? They or can is spend it $5 million bucks or $500 million bucks. We have projects in our portfolio that range from 10 megawatts in size to a gigawatt in size. And... Again, convert for me. So a gigawatt would. It's a thousand megawatts. So from ten megawatts to a thousand megawatts okay. in size. So. So they come in every size and flavor. Yeah. They come from one hour of duration, two hour of duration, four hours of duration, um, depending on the market and the use case that you're selling into. We're we're going to bring you back at some point and do do nothing but batteries. But I want to, I want to. That was make everything in my power not to make. A Back to the Future reference. Yes, yes. One point twenty-one gigawatts. Yeah. Yes. Well done. Oh, well done. Sorry. Um, it would be a travesty if we let you get away without talking about solar, given you spent, uh, you know, a good chunk of your career involved in solar. And so, um, how do you think about the solar business these days? We wa we see, uh, you know, we see the IEA saying we got to have a lot more solar. Um, is it is it the renewable energy of choice is wind better um, what are the gating items in solar these days so first my general view is there is a mix of renewable there's an optimum mix of renewables for any given geography and you can't generalize mm. the right answer for arizona is not the right answer for louisiana is not the right answer for peru is not the right answer for germany okay. so Everybody has renewable resources, um, and uh, and those resources are different. Some people have wind, some don't. Some people have irradiance. Some people have uh, hydropower. Um, you know, you have a wide variety of of resources. Um, so, I tend to think the job is to optimize in any given geography. Solar is there's a number of advantages that solar has. So, if I want to build a wind facility. And I want to know what the wind resource 
at a location is. I got to go build a tower that sticks way up in the air. I got to put a sensor on top of that tower and got to leave it there for years before I have enough data to know what my wind resource is. Solar, there, there are websites and computer programs that can calculate the average irradiance at any given spot on the, or on the earth and you're going to be within a few percentage points of that irradiance at any time. So from a simple development cycle, understanding the resource that you have, the, the irradiance, it's a much easier to deal with than wind. Um, it's much easier to deal with than hydropower. You know, we have a lot of hydro. Latin America is dominated by hydro. Um, again, so in terms of if you're going to pick a technology that's going to be of mass application across the entire globe, um, solar is probably the one you would you would pick. Again, I don't think you pick one. I think you use all mm -hmm, of the mm -hmm. above. But it's of it's of mass applicability. Um, it, it uses a lot of land, land mass, right? It covers a lot of area. Do we do we worry about that in a in a, a world that's focused on Yes. All things. Um, you worry about it. Um, it's used less and less land as we've moved forward. So, you know, the, the conversion efficiency, which is mm. the core efficiency of the panels, has doubled in the last 15 years. Dan, as the resident dumb guy on this podcast, I think I have the answer for that question. That is a last 10% problem, not mm. a next 10% problem. Ding, uh, ding, ding. Very good. Josh, you, you have, <laughs> contrary to popular opinion, you, you do learn stuff. Well, we because did I learn mean, stuff. It, I've seen the pictures, you know, the mountain flow where yeah. they just solar panels, and it's an eyesore to some extent. I mean, it is. It just depends where that is, obviously. But then you, you drive from Houston to Colorado, you see the, the wind uh, turbines and whatnot. So, you know, but what I'm hearing is that the panels are getting better, the power of whatever the word I'm looking for there. Efficiency. Efficiency yeah. is shrinking, so it is getting better. Yeah, and what you'll there's a dynamic that will happen over time. As panels get more efficient, we'll reach a point where it's more economic to repower an old solar facility than it is to build a new one. Mm. That's an interesting point. And so that we've already seen that cycle in wind. We will, you know, the earliest utility-scale solar plants are starting to approach 15, 20 years old. The panels that are available today are double the efficiency. So if you've got a 150-megawatt power plant sitting there, you rather than build a new one, you just repower wow. it as a 300-megawatt facility. Because, yes, there are, you know, the grid gets more complex. You need more transmission. Those are all valid issues, but you're absolutely right. It, it, it's a trade-off between is it the next 10% issue or the last 10% issue. For right now, we have lots of available land that we can add solar to, you know, in various places around the country and that it can be a very meaningful contributor to the grid is it the sole answer no um, um, is uh, you know we're gonna have to have all of the above I've long been an advocate of that you know oil and gas guy at, at your at my core it's that's kind of sounds like where you started too and is the do the governments and municipalities do they seem open to you like never before on what you're doing now with your solar and your energy and transition products 
more so than they ever were on your oil and gas well offerings that's it's hard to answer that question because it's very regional so let me give you an example the easiest place in the world to build a solar plant is texas bar none um the hardest place in the world to build a solar plant not the world but in the united states is unquestionably california so everything's hard in california everything's easy in texas it doesn't really matter whether it's oil and gas or whether it's um solar now you know is the vehemence around oil and gas greater than the vehemence around solar in california yeah but it's it's you know there are hard places to do business and there are easy places to do business so um uh you know as i tell people if i want to build a solar plant in rural texas the number of permits i need is zero if i want to build a solar plant anywhere in california i have multiple layers of permitting Mm -hmm. that's required you know it's just I, i we have our portfolio companies have large texas portfolios that are operating and they have large development pipelines in california and people go well, why'd you choose to build everything in Texas? I said, I didn't. I started at the same time. Because we can. Because <laughs> right. we can. You right. know, we're, we're catching up as fast as we possibly can. But it's just the nature of some places are hard in it's general, and other places are not hard in general. It's a good segue. What, what do you want and expect from the government? Let's call the federal government because it's easier. Um, do you think the energy transition needs government support so and how my core instinct is get out of my way yeah all right thank you um, i agree but the, we can't spend 10 trillion dollars from the private sector no, can we the government facilitating the early adoption and scaling of new technologies has been at times useful and can be a very useful tool the key is making sure it's a transitional period, not an absolute. Now, I, will, I will incur the wrath of some people by saying this, but I've long been of a viewpoint. Utility scale wind and solar should be placed on a level playing field. The right policy tool is not subsidy, it's renewable mandates instead of subsidy and then allow the competitive markets to to dictate the additions. Um, There are emerging technologies in the power field and in the fuels field where a little government subsidy to encourage some adoption to allow some manufacturing scale to be built can be a very useful part of the equation. But the broad, prolific, subsidize everything out there I generally think is counterproductive Um, uh, the primary mechanism for subsidy in the US at the federal level has been investment and production tax credits we have now produced so many of those that we have more credits than we have people that consume the credits Mm. so the supply of tax equity is a constraint on the market you don't really want and that the tax equity providers tend to be large commercial banks. As you will know from your career, they're not exactly the biggest risk takers uh-huh. in, the, in the ecosystem. You don't really want the constraint on the market to be the guy with the lowest risk tolerance. And so finding a mechanism 
that allows the industry to progress without creating a constraint where the guy who has tax capacity decides what projects get built and what projects don't get built seems like a better path forward. I personally, absolute convinced believer in if we had a carbon tax, we'd be way better off. Um, but there's a, a lot of political dynamics that oppose that. So you are not a big believer that we're going to have a carbon tax? The, the government likes to pick winners and losers because then the potential winners and losers spend a lot of money lobbying the government. And so the government picking a, using a system that doesn't generate a bunch of winners and losers um, is counter to its own pecuniary interests. And so um, I'm somewhat pessimistic that uh, we will get an alignment of the stars and get it. Now, what could happen if we got a carbon tax in Europe and a a carbon border border tax in Europe, then you have no choice at that point. You can either give the money to Europe or you can impose your own carbon tax. So I think the most likely way it comes around is it it gets imposed somewhere else in the world, most likely Europe, and they put up a border tax. And so it's like, well, do you want your companies to pay you that tax or do you want your companies to pay Europe that tax? Mm. So, but I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I think there's an awful lot to be done assuming none of any of that happens and so that's our focus is let's do what we can do Mm -hmm. today well you get a prize for the use of the word pecuniary it's the first time that's been used on this podcast um any suggestions for our listeners get some good words in there too by the way i know i know i mean i just picked i just picked one of his good words um any suggestions on uh, books or websites or resources to be smarter on the energy transition um well i shudder to do this to your listeners anybody who's serious about this topic should take the time to read the report of the intergovernmental panel on climate change okay because that's the problem ipcc yes that's the problem we're trying to solve that is the gold standard it is a consensus report from hundreds of people. So actually understanding what that document says is you're a far more valid pundit having done okay. that. W- what is this again? I want to hear. I want to make sure I can get this out it's to the people. The, so the, it's called the Inter- Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, okay. the IPCC. They write a report on average every five years where they lay out the state of the climate they talk about where we are okay they talk about the various scenarios of the future what they could look like they talk about what the possible out climate outcomes in those various scenarios are um you know much like the old um and i don't know that they whether they even do it anymore back when sarah was still sarah they had these scenario based Mm -hmm. research IGPCC works very much the same way. They have low emission scenario, medium emissions, high emissions. But it's just, it'll give you an understanding what's the problem we're actually trying to fight and what what matters. You can't fight anything unless you know where you're at, right? Or where at least they think you're at. And and the other thing that it helps you understand is people tend to treat this battle as binary. It's it's not binary. 
you know, it's it's not on off. We win, we lose. It's where do we end up on a continuum? So it, it's useful that. But then, you know, beyond that, um, I'm trying to think of a, a, a resource. The net zero report from from well the IEA was also quite good. Jurgen's books, his particular his book on the energy Dan transition, yep. yes, is mm-hmm. is a good one. Um, the IEA has an annual report, which always is is reas- a reasonable read, mm-hmm. um, which will give you again. It aggregates these numbers. That's the thing I think people really and truly fail to understand is they think this is a few solar panels on your roof. Mm-hmm. They don't understand the mass because. The energy transition, you know, we've just talked about power. Well, we have primary energy consumption across the rest of our industrial sector that if you're going to be net zero, okay, cement, steel production, aluminum production, you know, long list of other industrial sectors that also have to be decarbonized. Air travel, we're not going to be flying in electric airliners, I can assure you. I kind of have a follow-up to your question there on the, the books or, or, you know, panels. Is there a person that you think is doing a good job of spreading the message? I think you're doing an excellent job, and I mean that not just because you're, you know, three feet from me here, but is there is there somebody that's out there, you know, spreading the word in a way that you think, hey, this guy or girl is doing a great job? There probably is somebody they don't come to mind. My The problem I have is... Then it's you, and we're just going to put you out there. Is that, Everybody uh, tends to be in one extreme camp or the other, as opposed to the practical. Here's the here's what we have to do. You know, I've I have spent more hours and probably been a core part of raising more money and putting more megawatts in the ground that are low carbon than you know almost anybody out there but i'm also very pragmatic about if we destroy our economy at the same time we won't you know as i like to say the support for green energy is a mile wide and a millimeter deep Hmm. and if you you know it's like just in texas alone you can take a survey in texas are you interested in green power 74 percent of the people say yes I'm interested in green power. How much are you willing to pay a month for it? $10 more. So, you know, mile wide, millimeter deep. I'm interested in green power, but I'm not interested in paying very much for it. And so, as we're seeing today on a geopolitical basis, um, political unrest in Sri Lanka over fuel prices. You know, those of us that have gray hair have seen all of this. uh, uh, You know, we've seen this in the past. And so... You know, my big fear is we need to be very thoughtful. We need to be cost effective. We need to be efficient in tackling this problem. If we just throw money at it and pay no attention to the economic consequences, the political will to tackle this will disappear as fast Mm -hmm. as it manifested itself. Mm -hmm. It risks blowing itself up. Yep. Jim, what have we not talked about that we should? Anything that you're passionate about? We may have to cut and paste it to the beginning yeah, exactly. of this podcast. but um, The one question I usually get that y'all haven't asked is, what about nuclear? And Well, uh, it was in there. Um, yeah. my, you know, my answer on that one is nuclear should be a significant part of the answer. 
we're U.S. investors, and the problem in the U.S. is, as a practical matter, we've outlawed nu nuclear energy um, with the regulatory regime that we have in place. And so, for it to be part of the to be investable in the U.S., we've got to either start from scratch with a new regime because it's just um, we're it, it's not going to be a part of the answer under the current regime. So, you know, that's my hope. I. I'm skeptical that I'm going to see it in my professional career, but we need to be figuring out how to do nuclear right. So that would be that would be high on your to-do list for the government or the yes. free markets is to figure out how we can do nuclear. In Absolutely. And I believe you're talking about an administration, not a regime in the U.S.? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we, well, we're getting close. So on both sides, are starting to look at each other strange. It. it it's a great it's a great point because it's um, it should be part of the answer and and you sit there and look at the dynamics the bureaucracy the red tape the all of that and I don't know how it is in the next five or ten years because Agreed. even if you started today just building these things takes takes that long um, we always like to finish our podcasts with a lightning round that helps us understand a little bit more about you and by the way we probably could have spent an hour talking about Enron and what it was like to be there and so we'll save that for a future day as I well. I want to just say before we get into this this is I've really enjoyed this this has been an excellent podcast this is you know the question that you know that Dan asked about which books or podcasts that's a great question but then at the same time you know who can the audience also go listen to who do you think is encouraged I'm going to tell them. I mean, you know, if they can find you where you're speaking at different <laughs> events, you're because honestly, the world needs more reasonable people talking about reasonable things. This is not a, you know, this is not something that they can just keep ignoring forever. They do need to be educated on this type of subject, and I, I really just how much I I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So good. Glad we're going to get it. to the the lightning round, but this has been great. Yeah, good. yeah. So, Jim, the rules here are. Yes or no, one-word answers. You can't elaborate. We just have to draw our own conclusions I've from how you from playing this game. How Jim. how you answer, and so Josh and I are going to tag team on the questions. I'll go. Let me go first this time. You go it, first. It this didn't time. work out okay. for me on the last round. You ready? Ready. If we had a clock, I'd start it. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Cash or crypto? Cash. London or Paris? London. Soccer or baseball? Baseball. Hamburgers or pizza? Hamburgers. Puppies or kittens? Puppies. United Airlines or Southwest Airlines? United Airlines. The S&P 500 for the rest of 22. Are you bullish or bearish? Bearish. Wind or solar? Solar. If, if you didn't answer that yeah. one, that was the... <laughs> That was the one that I, I had 100% certainty on. And now on. I'm in trouble with two of my partners. There you that's go. Okay. Um, Tesla or Rivian? Tesla. Will there be a carbon tax in the United States by year end 24? No. Will the globe make net zero by 2050? No. Batman or Robin? Batman. Law degree or MBA? Law degree. The Godfather or Goodfellas? The Godfather. Yeah. Mm. And the one question we ask in every lightning round, because I'm so frustrated, will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? 
No. <laughs> Damn. Well, I think you're even right. though I hated the answer to your last question, I loved every other minute of the <laughs> podcast. Jim Hughes, managing partner of InCaps Energy Transition Fund. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks. Thanks for thanks having very me. much. Thoroughly and, enjoyable. Uh, www.incapinvestments.com at the Energy Transition tab is where we find out more about you. Thank you so much, Great. Jim. Thank you all.